Good morning, everyone. Perhaps uh, just a, a short prayer before we begin. Our God and Heavenly Father, we read that the psalmist has said, One thing I asked of the Lord, one thing that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. And Lord, this is our prayer this day. So, Father, may we see you more clearly and follow you more nearly and love you more dearly. For this we humbly ask. Amen. Um, For those of you who uh, were expecting to hear from the book of Colossians today, I'm sorry you are going to be disappointed. Um, But uh, I have just been really impressed uh, recently uh, particularly as we looked into John 17 a couple of weeks ago in our worship time, uh, to just consider afresh the, the nature of God, uh, in particular the, the triune nature of God. You know, all of our thoughts that we have as individuals, all of our speech, all of our behaviour, our gospel witness and testimony, and indeed all of our worship uh, is underpinned by our view of God. And I thought at the, as we draw towards the close of another year, it's a good time just to refresh and renew and to recalibrate our understanding of who God is based upon his word. You know, fundamentally, the questions that the Bible asks us, things like, what think you of Jesus? Who do you say that I am? Are fundamentally the most important questions we can ever ask ourselves. And these questions, the answers to these questions will have ramifications uh, into eternity. And, you know, um, most Christians are okay with the the notion of uh, or saying things like, well, we love God and we love Jesus. We love the Holy Spirit. But for some reason, when we start to... uh, endeavor to question the actual Godhead, the Trinity, if you like, the triune nature of God, the triunity of God. Sometimes we feel as though, well, we should just leave, leave these sorts of matters to the theologians, the, the ones, the, you know, the um, pasty, socially awkward, um, perhaps residing in uh, brick, uh, mouldy buildings, um, musty old seminary somewhere where they have lots of time to consider these weightier matters. But really, that's, that is not what God wants us to do. That is not how the Bible presents the Godhead. Uh, the Bible presents God as indeed a tri-unity, tri-unified God. And I want to show us this morning, I want us to just consider and meditate that it's not necessarily just through a few proof texts that he does this. It's not just taking a couple of verses uh, on their own, but it's rather the entire narrative of Scripture, of how the Godhead is working together. And so today I just feel as though we, it would do us good to renew and to refresh our hearts and to again just uh, gaze uh, and look upon the beauty and the wonder uh, of this God who we have come to know through his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And you know, the, the idea of a, a God that has three distinct persons yet in one perfectly unified being, you know, we, we can go to one end and, and we can ex- explain and try to, you know, manipulate it into our own human reasoning and we come up with this unnecessary uh, complexity where it becomes almost laborious, you know, and you can pick up tomes of uh, books that have been written on this this fact, and it becomes almost to the point where it's it's just dull. They over-explain things. They use words that that are not needed, and then you go to the other end of the extreme where they where something that is so wonderful, something that so is so exciting about the true nature of God that it becomes oversimplified, and it becomes diminished to the point where the simplicity actually kills the idea. It kills the very uh, thing that God would have us to know as his children. And so there's this, um, there's this uh, uh, didactic sort of force between what, what is the seeming contradiction of our own human reason between the great mystery of the Godhead which God has revealed. You know, ancient Israel, if we go right back to the very beginning, they, they lived in this polytheistic world where the idea of uh, the plurality of gods was something very, very common. You know, everybody had a god and everybody had lots of different gods. And so this um, polytheistic world, you know, it's not too dissimilar to the world that we know now. And that has been brought more and more to the front because of the, the modern uh, forms of communication. It's become so much more obvious. But in ancient Israel, you know, the, the environment there, they, they had to, they were influenced by that environment and to the point where God gave them very specific language to use when they were referring to him. And the opening line of the Shema for the, for the Jew, in, and it comes from Deuteronomy 6.4 in our Bibles, it just says, O hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And of course, as as Christians, we say amen to that. We say amen. Blessed be his glorious name. And, you know, theologians since the early church, they have protected the nature of God. They have protected our own understanding and idea of the nature of God. And that's why we have in, in these great mysteries with the, the incarnation, God becoming man. Once we start thinking about these things, once we start meditating on these truths, you know, we find this actual wonderful harmony and unity in the scripture. And so these, these doctrines were articulated in the early church in the forms of, of creeds, the Nicene Creed, to protect the, the majesty and the grandeur of the church's understanding of who God was. It was, it was, as it were, a very economical way to try and explain a very con- complex uh, idea. And it is, if you like, the articulation of what the church believes, it is based on this, as I was saying earlier, the narrative of Scripture, the full revelation of God, the entire biblical revelation of God. And though even though today we view this mystery still as, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, as through a dark glass, as through a mirror, dimly lit. 
that we are looking in through this glass and we can see the forms, we can see the truth, but yet we haven't seen the whole thing. But we're beholding the face through the glass. We're beholding the glory of the Lord. And as we behold him, as we become fixed on him, that is when we are changed even from this same image from glory to glory. And so that is what I just hope that we can again just do today as we, as we gaze upon uh, the glory of the Lord, somebody who is vastly more glorious, more mysterious, more wonderful, uh, more compelling than we could ever comprehend. Somebody who is so bountiful, so rich and glorious uh, in, in, his, in the way that he has bestowed himself upon his creation. So the triunity of God, God as our creator, God as our redeemer, God as our comforter. And so, like I said, I'm not going to go through the, the many different proof texts, if you like. I don't even like that term, really. Um, you know, the, the verses that everybody sort of jumps straight to are, are verses like Matthew 28, 18, where the Lord says, uh, and Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me, even in heaven and earth. Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And so, you know, the argument has always been made that these particular verses, and there's others like this, that mention the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit in operation. Well, well, that's, that just means straight away we can, we can close our Bibles. God is a triune God. He operates in three different ways. End of story. Um, but what I just want us to do, I just want to show up, um, show you just through uh, the reading, and I don't expect you to turn to all these because there, there is a number, but just, just consider them. Look at them like a tapestry of Scripture. And this tapestry is painting something particularly unique uh, in the way that the Godhead actually operates and interacts within itself. Okay? So that's I want to sort of just focus on that today. How the Godhead interacts within ourselves, And then we'll look at the things that flow out of that. And Scripture is full of actions and relations within the Godhead, where one divine person of the Godhead, whether it is the Father acting some way towards the Son, or the Son acting some way towards the Father, or the Spirit acting some way towards the Son. And this is seen in Scripture. In, in John chapter 3, we read, The Father loveth the Son, and have given all things into his hands. So you see one divine person loving another divine person. Then in John chapter 14, John's gospel is going to come up a lot this morning. John's uh, uh, in chapter 14, where we have a divine person actually dwelling in another. In verse 10 and 11 of 14, Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. Okay? So we have this, firstly, the love of one divine person to another, we have the dwelling of one divine person in another. And then 
we could go to the Old Testament, to Zechariah and chapter 13. Zechariah and chapter 13 and verse 7. And this is remarkable. It's one of those um, verses that just simply arrest you. Uh, and you think, wow, this is, this is incredible. Um, it says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. So here we have, within the Godhead, suffering at the hands of another within the Godhead. It's an incredible thought. Back to the New Testament in Matthew chapter 11. Again, another well-known passage that brings out the triunity. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 21. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and and he to, to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Okay, one divine person again, knowing another. And Hebrews 1.8, Hebrews 1.8 says this, but, but unto the Son he hath said, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. So here we have the, the person of the Godhead in, in the Lord Jesus Christ addressing uh, the, the Father. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And of, and of course, back in John, we know that in John chapter 14, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. So here we have in the Godhead, within the Godhead, that the way to another person within the Godhead is through Christ. Luke chapter 3 and verse 22 We have here that the the Father speaks to another, speaks. And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. The Father speaking to the Son. And glorifies, back in John 17. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. In the Old Testament, in Genesis, and this is perhaps one of the the better known ones, where you have the Godhead there in communion, and God said... Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So we have this conferring. We have this conversation that is occurring. And again in chapter 11 of Genesis, when uh, the Tower of Babel was constructed. And again, we see this conferring between the Godhead. Let us go down and confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. And in Isaiah 6, whom shall I send? Whom will go for us? 
it's incredible that we have this treasure of Scripture that gives us these conversations, these interactions and actions within the Godhead, seeing very clearly and very plainly and very beautifully how the Godhead operates. He also plans. In Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Almighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the planning within the Godhead. And of course, how could we, how could we leave off that one has sent another? In John 14, the Comforter, the Holy Ghost, which from the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. And lastly, and I'm sure there's more than this, but these, these are the ones just for um, economic, <laughs> the economics of time this morning. Rewards another. Rewards another. And in Philippians, let us let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant, and he was made in the likeness of men. And being found as a, in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. And here it is. This is the reward Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of the things in heaven and of the things on earth and the things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, after reading those passages and, you know, taking the time just to read them and to meditate upon them, I'm just not even sure why there, there is this conflict within Christendom. I'm not sure why or how some of the cults have started throughout the millennia uh, unless there is some other uh, dark reason for, for doing that, for not listening to these truths um, that we've just considered. They're there for us to know these things. They're there for us in plain and simple language and, you know, the more we think about God and how he has revealed himself, the more we develop this clear vision of who he is and the more beautiful and precious he becomes to us. And that is the intent. You know, have you ever thought of what God was doing before creation? You know, this is one of those questions that... Um, Man have, has uh, not struggled with, but just considered. And, you know, what was God doing? Um, and we touched on this a couple of weeks ago. But, you know, just put aside creation for a moment. And there is, there is God ruling and reigning in light, inexpressible. And he is there and he is there with the sun and the spirit in all the glory and majesty that only belongs to him. He doesn't need a creation to add anything to him. He is not diminished in any way by not having this creation. He is there completely satisfied 
and glorified in himself. And you know, and then in John's gospel, we read in verse 24 of chapter 17 that in that prayer that Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. And we have this, this little, you know, capsule back into eternity past. There in the perfect fellowship of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father outpouring his love on the Son. And this is, this is the truth I want us to, to get. God the Son receiving that love that was outpoured from the Father. And so at the very first moment, there in eternity, God was a loving heavenly Father. And the beauty of the the triunity of God that brings this truth to our hearts was that because he was a loving heavenly father, he needed to have an object of love, and that was the son. And because of that, because of the father's eternal, ancient love flowing out to the son, he, he said those words, my beloved son, for all to hear. And this love between the father and the son, like the, the rivers of water that we were considering this morning, that, those fountains of living water that were constantly being poured out and out of that superabounding love because we serve and know and love a giving God. A God who has to give. A God who has to pour out blessing. He is not a God who takes. You know, it's, it's just, we get lost in this wonder when we consider these things. And that is the point. We can, we can worship. We can appreciate because we start to understand the, the type of God that we have come to know the type of God, the one true and living God that we have come to love because he first loved us. And of course, the Father loves us because he loved the Son. And now let us love one another for love is of God and everybody who is born of God and knows God, he who does not love does not know God for God is love. This God, you know, would not be who he was if he didn't have the Son to love. That is what is so amazing about the Godhead. And it means that he has this love to give out within the triunity of the Godhead, to bless the Son, the Spirit Echoing back to the Father all of that love that the Son has. At the baptism of Jesus, the Spirit, where it says descended upon him, the word there is, is a, a very unique word. It's, it's the same word that is used when the, the angel comes and, and it says the shadow, the, the shadow of the Most High, the, the overshadowing of God, the Spirit of God coming and brooding over him 
For this is the spirit that that makes the love of God known to the Son. And just as he has made that love of God known to the Son, that same spirit has been sent to us. And that same spirit has been shed abroad in our hearts so that we might too know this. You know, imagine for a moment, just in contrast, a single person God. Imagine for a moment where we find ourselves and there is not a God here that has any object of his affection or his love. There is not a God here who is a loving heavenly father as revealed in scripture. No, before creation, we, are, we, we find ourselves a figure of a lonely and alone and therefore an unloving God because there is no one else present. There is no one in which to love. A single person God cannot be love. And because he created something, he had, he had nothing to love. So, so, the, so the argument goes. So that's why he created something. Well, history is scattered with the mythology of, of human religion where these so-called gods, you know, these, um, and these little demigods that they, they want slaves or they want servants or they want friends and that's why they've created certain things. You know, it's this nonsense that you're left with. But our, our God, our triune God, he was never lonely. He was always satisfied with knowing and loving the Son. You know, he wasn't empty, not trying to take, but always full and always giving out of that fullness. Loved, loving him before the foundation of the world. It is little wonder that John, after John does his best to describe the word becoming flesh and of that fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The 18th century uh, New England theologian Jonathan Edwards, on this rare occasion where he uh, puts something so uh, with such brevity uh, and economy, but very strikingly, he says, God's aim in creating the world was himself. But because this God's very self is so different from that of any others, and that means something utterly different from what it means with other gods, that this God's very self is found in giving and not taking. This God is like a fountain of goodness. And so he said, seeking himself means seeking himself diffused and expressed. In other words, seeking to have himself, his life and his goodness shared. His very nature is about going out and sharing of his own fullness and that is what he is all about. In contrast to all other gods, the exuberant, the overflowing nature of this God means that his pleasure is rather a pleasure in diffusing and communicating to the creature than in receiving from the creature. He's the superabounding, all-giving all-loving God, the God of all grace, who doesn't need anything, but he enjoys his children's obedience and worship. 
C.S. Lewis in his screw tape letters has a, a stark contrast in this very brief conversation between the senior devil, remember screw tape, and the junior devil, Wormwood. And you know, the senior devil says to, says to the junior one, well, you know, one must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his servants and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. You see, Wormwood, we want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled, and he is full and flows over. It's a vivid conversation, isn't it? Although fictional, but it makes the point that you have this, this God who is just so full and so ready. And the tragedy is that so many people in this world, the tragedy is that their view of God is more like the view of the devil. And so they see God as this being that wants to take and put them in chains and is hungry and grasping and envious of them. Whereas this could not be further from the truth. Whereas we have come to know the God revealed in Scripture as the the superabundant, generous, radiant, self-giving God. Grace then, grace. It's not merely a kindness for those who have sinned. It is the very creation itself is a work of grace flowing from God's love. The very fact that God brought anything into being. And love is not a mere reaction with God. In fact, it is not a reaction at all. God's love, by its very definition, is a creative love. God's love is creative. And love was there long before the world was. And it comes first in everything that God does. You know, this has, this has enormous impacts from how we view the Gospels, how we view the operation of God, how we view our Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect obedience when some of these things start to gel. You know, without the triunity of the Godhead, you think about this, you know, there, there is no incarnation. For, for who would he send? And without the triunity of the Godhead, there is no cross. For who would die for sin? For where is the one that could satisfy such a holy God? Without the triunity of the Godhead, there is no resurrection. For who would raise him? Without the triunity of the Godhead, there is no ascension. For to whom would he return? You see, the, the vital importance of this blessed truth in every aspect of our faith. 
And that is why we are brought to enjoy this, this God, this triune God through the Gospels. And you know, the, the Trinity helps us see the, the full glory and the sweetness of the Gospel because we can see the operation of the Godhead at work on behalf of one another and on behalf of his creation, his children. You know, this is why uh, the Christian cults are so off the mark because they offer religion. They may even offer a type of forgiveness in some strange way, but they, they cannot offer closeness. They cannot offer fellowship. They cannot offer what God has done because they don't have it. They deny the very nature of God and in doing so forfeit the blessing. You know, there was another blessing that the, the, the triune nature of God offers us, and that is, that is adoption. And in John 17, again, Jesus says those words, that you loved me, love them, even as you love me. Our Father, we can say it, we are, we are told to say it. We are told to address him as our Father. We are told to, in fact, address him as Abba, Father. This is how Jesus addresses the Father. This is how the Spirit in Romans 8, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, the beloved Son. You did not receive the spirit of slavery, but the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. That's the Spirit that we've been given, whereby we can now come as sons, calling out to God, Abba, Father, and enjoy this wonderful fellowship, this wonderful familiarity. And I don't mean that in a sense of we just get used to it, but the familiarity of God and his children. We come here today to this place to worship him in spirit and in truth because we have fellowship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the spirit and with one another. He has unified all things. He is still unifying all things to himself through the blessed Holy Spirit. And, and really the, the fundamental, the two, the two things, the two applications, I guess, from this that has become really stark to me. The firstly, if you, it seems, if we understand that God has loved the Son, well, then it, the logic then says, well, if you want to be godly, you must love Christ, for God has loved Christ. So our first and foremost attitude, and we can do this because of the spirit that he has placed within us, but we should be ones that are, if we are seeking to be godly, our first call of business is the fact that we love Christ. We love Christ just as God has loved Christ. And we can do this. Christ in you, the hope of glory, the spirit of the son. We are given nothing less than the same spirit that has been given to us. And then the other application, if we want to be Christ-like, if we want to know the blessing of walking as our master walked, then his first and foremost was to love God. And if we want to be Christ-like, we must love God too. And just as we have been placed into the Son 
that we know now that our life is hidden with Christ in God. And because of that fact, we actually can love as Christ loved. And thirdly, and we've already touched on this, but and thirdly, the harmony and the beauty of the fellowship that we now enjoy. The harmony and the beauty of the fellowship we now enjoy through the Spirit, being knit together with one another. Paul writes in Ephesians that he's broken down the middle wall of partition between us. And when writing to the Colossians, that our hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, attaining to all the riches and full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. Just in closing this morning, can we just consider the the nature of the triune God at Christmas time. I think it's appropriate. You know, consider consider Mary for a moment. And like Mary, you know, when she was visited by the angel uh, there towards the end of Luke chapter 1, you know, when these things started to dawn on her, you know, it says that she was much perplexed. She was much perplexed. There was a lot to take in. And Mary being a good little Jewess, she would have known her Old Testament. She would have known that there was only one God. And she would have known some of those wonderful Psalms that allude to the the power of the Most High coming and covering the servants of the Lord, coming, coming and protecting. Psalms like Psalm 17, which says, Guard me as the apple of your eye, hide me under your wings. Psalm 57, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for your soul, my soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wings, and I will take refuge until the destroying storms pass. Psalm 91, you who live in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now, some of these things may have been known and understood to Mary, but as we know, the Old Testament saints, they don't have, didn't have the benefit that we have. We have the benefit of the full revelation of Jesus Christ. We have the benefit of God walking this earth. And we have the account of this. We have the exposition of this. And we even have the great and glorious revelation of what it will be when he returns. And it is, it's no wonder that you know, the Gospels just record us that, that Mary, when she'd heard all these things, that the Holy Spirit was going to come upon her and the Spirit of the Most High would overshadow her. And she says, well, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. The operation of the Spirit, this secret operation that only was between the Godhead. Not even Mary, who was the mother, would be uh, would, would understand what was happening, would be told, would be shown what was going to happen, how it was going to take place. She was just told how, that it was going to happen. 
And, you know, it begins there with God. It begins there, doesn't it, that he will send his son, the angel says, and that he will be great. He'll be called the son of the most high and God will give this son a throne of David. The increase of his rule, there will be no end. He will have an eternal throne. He will have an eternal house. He will have an eternal kingdom. And with what the dear little perplexed Mary, what she says, and Mary said, when these things, when she, it said that she pondered these things in her heart. And that's what I'd just like us to do today, is just, just ponder, we've covered a lot of ground, just ponder these things in our hearts today. Because what it'll do, and this is the final application, what it will do as we ponder these things in our hearts, we will be like Mary. And she finally arrives at this place of worship. And we have that beautiful Magnificat, Mary's Magnificat, recorded for us. And where she says, you know, just, just the first line is enough. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Saviour. So let's just consider these things afresh. Let's just meditate upon them. Let's let these things wash over us and just simply come and worship the thrice holy God, the triune God who has operated in absolute superabounding love towards the Son and towards his creation. You know, the Christmas carol, O Come All Ye Faithful, in the second verse, and I was going to sing it this morning with you all, but um, it's the verse is not actually in our hymn book. Uh, but the verse that, that is obviously omitted, um, you know, it's, it actually is taken from the Nicene Creed. And it's the we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, light of light, very God, yet very God. Begotten, not made, being of one substance and of one Father. So why would somebody think it fitting to include allusions of the Nicene Creed in a Christmas carol? And, and this is why. It's because God came down at Christmas. It is because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. 